the Legion. <sighs> of lethargic super geeks. We aren't picky. If it's sci-fi or fantasy, we'll chat about it. Welcome to the Legion of Lethargic Super Geeks. Uh, I am your host, Alan, and I have a little bit of an unusual episode today because my normal uh, cadre of uh, folks are not here, and instead I have the uh, marvelous Nick Adam Pulling. Say hi, Nick. Hello. How are and you, Alan? I'm doing great, man. And I also have uh, Tim Timothy Price, author extraordinaire. Hey, guys. What's going on? Doing great, man. So uh, I've got these two on today to talk about um, uh, a classic movie uh, review. We're doing 20 Million Miles to Earth, and uh, this was actually Nick's suggestion. So I'm going to let Nick tell me why he picked 20 Million Miles to Earth for us to talk about. Sure, absolutely. And I thank you so much for having me on the show and uh uh, talking some monsters here. The uh, show that I host is called The Monster Report. I what, The reason I named it that is because I didn't want it to be limited to my first love, which has always been Godzilla and tokusatsu monsters. Mm-hmm. But even, you know, coming way back, uh, the video store days, which young people don't know about, and uh, they <laughs> they won't know about unless <laughs> they read about it in books, uh, they, they may have, you know, during my time, of course, uh, growing up, you may have seen some uh, in the science science fiction horror section, along with Godzilla movies, Ray Harryhausen films, and if you're a monster fan like I was, uh, they just went hand in hand so well. And uh, I didn't get the chance as a kid though to watch um, Twenty Million Miles on Miles to Earth uh, in video. It was on television a lot, and I always saw it in the black and white version. Of but course. recently, 2007, they've colorized it for home video, DVD, and Blu-ray. Um, and it's just looking really great. And uh, what's also great about that copy is a commentary from Mr. Ray Harryhausen himself uh, talking with uh, Phil Tippett, who helped with the special effect, uh, part of the special effects crew for uh, Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park and a lot of Spielberg films. Uh, mm. So it's cool to hear, you know, two generations of, of special effects gurus uh, really just, uh, you know, picking the, the legends mind and, and his memories and uh, telling some just amazing stories. They could have gone on for hours and I would have listened to every minute of it, uh, that commentary. So, uh, But yeah, it's one of my favorites of Harryhausen's, but I don't know if there's one favorite I have. The, probably the one I watch most in my collection is Valley of Guanji. Oh yeah. Uh, but, but I do really appreciate uh, what he did with the story of 20 million miles to earth, especially with the, uh, creature being, and I'm sure we're going to get into this as we go being a sympathetic creature. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, I have, uh, I have a ton of questions I'm going to ask both of you about this thing as we go, but before I get into it, what I want to do is, um, have, uh, Tim Bryce, uh, give us a quick, quick plot synopsis of this movie, just so that for those of you who are listening who haven't seen it, get a concept of, of what it is and uh, and 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 uh, what it's about. Absolutely. So, and, and like Nick said, this is this is one of my all-time favorites. As a matter of fact, this is as a kid the very first Harryhausen film that I ever saw. 
Um, geez, it was like on Channel 9 at like 1.30 a.m., and I stayed up to watch it. But the plot of the movie is it's a, a returning spaceship from Venus, and um, the rocket ship crashes uh, into the sea just off the coast of Sicily. And William Hopper, the protagonist, he plays Colonel Calder. Mm-hmm. And um, what happens is he's the only survivor, and they've come back from Venus where the, the atmosphere is extremely harsh, it's killed every crew member but him, and the they brought a creature back in a sealed container that they can't find. And of course, the creature is what's known as now. How do you do? You say this Yemer, Nick? Is that how you say it? Other people say it different. Uh, I say I say Yemer. Okay, well, yeah, the way that Harryhausen in the commentary says it is, he is. It's almost being pronounced with the double e e mirror with a long e sound. Uh, like Emir. Emir, yeah. Ah, okay, yeah, I, cool. I actually, so when I was researching this, I actually uh, read a bit where uh, he never wanted the name of the creature to be said in the movie because it's he not, as because, a matter of fact, because he was scared that it would be confused with uh, the, I guess Jewish Jewish name Emir. Okay, so it's pronounced Emir, and that's yeah, awesome. So well, this this makes this podcast awesome now because I've just learned something from a movie that I've been enjoying for forty years. So exactly. Um, so, which is great about this. So, the creature, they find the creature, um, and uh, Pepe, who's a little Sicilian boy, sells it to a uh, uh, a local professor, and the creature escapes. All havoc breaks loose, and they have to catch it, and then they have to they bring it to Rome for further study. They're trying to evade the Sicilian government, who just wants to kill the creature. The U.S. government wants to study it, and they uh, eventually get it to Rome where it escapes, wreaks all kind of havoc, and has its triumphant King Kong ending on top of the Colosseum. And, um, and you know, I'm like you guys. This is obviously, you know, one of those stories where the creature is misunderstood, and it's, it's, a, it's usually a, a, a docile creature unless provoked and... It's, it's pretty easy to see that it's provoked during the movie. And you can even see where Harryhausen went out of his way to show you how gentle the Emer was by having it... Remember when he comes up to the lamb when he's about mm-hmm. to go into the, yeah. the, the barn and he's, he's just kind of looking at the lamb and the lamb's all cute and, and the Emer just moves on, doesn't, doesn't want to hurt it, doesn't want to do anything, which is sort of like your, your first glance at, oh, the Emer's kind of nice. And then... Gets attacked by the dog, protects itself. Gets attacked by the farmer, protects itself. So he shows you a lot of that stuff. And that's one thing I really liked about Ray is his his feelings and passion for the creatures he created. Right. So there, there's a brief summary. Well, now, the, the next question that I typically ask when I'm doing movie reviews on this podcast is to get a, a, a one to five rating, one meaning it's absolute garbage and five meaning it's near perfect perfection. But um, I'm not sure that this is an appropriate movie to be rating like that for all of the reasons we've just discussed. It's a classic. It's important for all of the um, uh, Ray Harryhausen uh, reasons, so on and so forth. So, yeah. what I'll, so what I'll do instead for this one is um, ask you uh, in the grand scheme of Ray Harryhausen movies, 
um, how important do you feel this one is? Like, is it is it the most important Ray Harryhausen Housen movie to see, or is there one that you would recommend more, or is this the one that you think people should start with when they begin to explore Harryhausen? What do you think, Nick? Go I'll ahead, go Nick. You, I'll go to you first. Okay. Yeah. Um, not a problem there. As far as like the importance of Ray Harryhausen, um, you know, you could say all of them have their own kind of uh, special. A uh, special story that goes along with it that uh, Harryhausen had his ch- his specific challenges to create the creature. You know, you could go back to his earliest, of course, Mighty Joe Young, yep. but he was um, he was working with the legendary Willis O'Brien. And yep. So you can you can't say that that is total Ray Harryhausen. But what's interesting is if you go back to Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, which is somewhat of an inspiration uh, for Godzilla. Uh, 1953, I believe that came out. That yep. was when Harryhausen began his career as the solo special effects guy, where he worked by himself in, you know, if he found himself an office to work in, he would rent it for the duration of the production of the film. And he he worked, you know, they he took his concepts uh, and he did not have assistance really to put things together with the exception of his father, who was good with the metal work, the armatures. Yep. That uh, the creature was built around, yeah. And so, as far as you know, this being one of the signature Harryhausen's ones, I think uh, what what he put into it, as far as the expression of the creature, how much of of what he wanted it to be beyond just a a run of the mill monster movie. I don't know if there really is such a thing, but if you were to say there was one, Beast is kind of the run of the mill. He's you really don't sympathize much with the the uh, Redosaurus from the Beast. Right. Uh, he definitely has he definitely has to end his life at the end of the film because he's not compatible to live with us. But you know, there's a tragic ending to uh, the creature in in this film, Twenty Million Miles to Earth. So Harryhausen went out of his way, I think, in expressing himself through this creature. You know, you, when you see the creature, in a lot of ways, you're seeing the acting. Uh, of of uh, Ray Harryhausen. A lot of the other films uh, drew a lot of inspiration from this. If you look at Clash of the Titans, the Kraken at the end of the film resembles uh, absolutely Mir. Absolutely. Yeah. When, so when you when you watched it, Nick, did you did you watch it recently? Yes. Yes. Recently. We had we had the whole family around the TV, and we watched Clash of the Titans not too long ago. And when he. Uh, when he came up from underneath the bridge and then come up, came up from under the water and he was wet, everybody went, it's the Kraken. <laughs> he did. He, yeah. he totally, that's, that, that is 100% right on the money. Well, so do you have anything you want to add there, Tim, about uh, the importance of this movie or how it fits in the Ray Harryhausen uh, pantheon of films? I, I give it a solid five. <laughs> I'd, I'd give it, I'd give it a, a thousand on that. Um, sure, man. For, for reasons for me, one, like I said, it's the first Harryhausen film I ever saw. And it was probably only the second stop-motion film that I ever saw, um, only second to King Kong on the big screen when I was a kid. And to see that movie right after seeing Kong was really amazing to me. And, you know, back then we drew all of our, our knowledge about these films, usually from famous monsters of film land and any other kind of uh, rag or tidbits we could find. But, you know, it's so funny. After seeing it, 
I remember thinking how much the the Emer reminded me of King Kong. Um, sure. And, and as I mentioned really quick, when he's on the Coliseum and he's swatting, he's doing a lot of Kong-esque moves. And in how how Harryhausen brought uh, the Emer to life, you know, with uh, even when he was uh, on the machines and they had him unconscious where Harryhausen would use a balloon inside the model to give the idea of the chest expanding when the yeah. the sleeping creature was breathing but as as towards one of his most important works um i don't i don't know if it is um i can't really say it's important to me but i think a lot of people look at um Harryhausen's work and this this is just once again my opinion but you know my my favorite Harryhausen film is hands down The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and followed closely by Jason and the Argonauts. And I think some people may say that those are are the key films in his career. But, you know, I know one thing about Harryhausen fans is they have equal love for just about every one of his films, you know, from the beginning with Mighty Joe Young all the way to Clash of the Titans. You know, they all seem to have their their own uniqueness, which is really cool for something like that. And, you know, I, um, I I love this one from, like what I said, it was the first Harryhausen film I ever saw. But Seventh Voyage is hands down my favorite. And then as a young man, I saw Golden Voyage of Sinbad. And that's, a, that's also a close second, um, probably more so because of Caroline Monroe. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I always say about the, uh, a Harryhausen film, anyways, um, when it comes to all of his films, uh, th- to keep in mind, to keep the score, he has never directed these films. He is the special effects director. Absolutely. Uh, how many times do you watch a Harryhausen film, you know, unless you're me or Tim, who probably knows a lot of the director's names, but for the most part, the average person knows, oh, that's the visual effects of Ray Harryhausen. So it's a right. Harryhausen film. They barely. This is a Nathan Juran film, yep. uh, you know, or that they, you know, whoever. And, and that's that's who did Twenty Million Miles to Earth, by the way, Alan, who, yeah. who Nick just mentioned. Sure. He also directed what Golden Voyage, and uh, another. Uh, I can't remember the other Harryhausen film Juran directed, but he also directed, like for instance, Deadly Mantis, which was not stop motion at all. Right, sure. right, but which also had William Hopper. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Which is which is kind of cool, and for those folks out there who don't know who William Hopper is, he was, as Nick said, he was in the Deadly Mantis and Twenty Million Miles to Earth, that both had the same director. He was also Paul Drake on Perry Mason, which is kind of fun because then on Perry Mason we had Raymond Burr, who was Steve Martin in the Americanized version of Gojira, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Right. Well, so so on that note. Um is there uh, is is there anything that we know about this director that we, we you you guys want to share with me? Uh, how did he feel about being uh, upstaged by Harryhausen? <laughs> well, I got to tell you, I I think a lot of these directors in the fifties and in the sci-fi era, I think that was pretty much the norm um, for a lot of these flicks because even now, especially now with uh, the new. There's there's so many monster movies coming out now, and even kaiju films, and you know even the superhero genres and all of that. But back in the 50s, I can say that 
it's like watching a Godzilla movie, you know, with the exception of like the Ishiro Honda stuff, you know, I think, I think a lot of these directors almost expected to be upstaged by the monster who's usually the true star. And, you know, Harryhausen, as Nick said, had a lot of directors, you know, and um, pretty much Harryhausen's partner in crime for all of these movies was his producer, Charles Schneer. And when you watch all of these Harryhausen films, I think it's something like 95% of his special effects movies like that that came out, Charles Schneer was his director. So I don't, I, I personally don't know how particular he was or wasn't in regards to any certain director. And maybe that's something Nick could answer. Well, I did remember hearing in the commentary him talking about the directors he's worked with, how Harryhausen would have staged them. And uh, that was just really a case of, uh, you know, there was one director who didn't really understand how it is that the special right. effects director could have so much on the set. And yeah. there was one director who tried to get him <clears throat> to uh, get him fired uh, from the from the project. But when he realized that uh, Harryhausen's name carried more clout, he had to drop that, uh, you know, drop like a bad habit. But Juran, you know, at least uh, everything Harryhausen was talking about, uh, about them working together and collaborating on this and uh, and Seventh Voyage, is that they worked well together. And, you know, even with Harryhausen not being a film director, he had a lot of creative control. And even to the point of going on location, meeting cast and crew, uh, you know, uh, picking the specific location, in this case being Italy, uh, Sicily, he wanted, he just really wanted to go there. It changed from Chicago, uh, which was not, <laughs> it was not exotic enough for right. Harryhausen. So he yep. had the chance uh, to visit Sicily as a result of, of uh, locating this film you know, over there. So he had the chance and he said, you know, I just need to make another film that's based in another place. I want to take a vacation to. And, uh, and he was able to do that. So his name carried quite a bit, you know, of, of recognition, even this being what his uh, fifth or sixth film to this point, uh, you know, he was, he was starting, you know, he had earth versus the flying saucers before mm -hmm. this, which, uh, you know, it's a great Harryhausen film, but I still am always leaning towards, Harryhausen as a creature, uh, creator, yep. more so than the the flying saucers, which were just you know I, I don't want to call I don't want to downplay them. That was still a cool visual effect, but uh, you know they were they were pretty solid state you know materials there. They just kind of rotated and uh, you know uh, I, I still like when he creates dinosaurs, creatures, uh, you know myth mythological creatures, aliens, all of that. Right. Sure. And Alan, you and I had this talk the other day, and I said. Uh, something very similar to Nick, and I said I would probably never say it on a podcast or anything, but I uh, I love, just like Nick says, his creatures, anything that's fantasy, and when it, when it involved anything that was, uh, some of the mechanical stuff was cool, but I always like suitmation a lot better for, like, monster destruction as opposed to stop motion. Right. Um, uh, and that's just personal opinion, and, and 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 like Nick is stressing too, it is it is nothing to diminish his craft because we love Harryhausen, you know. But my favorite Harryhausen stuff was always the creatures themselves, um, and then when he would have creatures fight because they looked just the amount of study he put into it, and he got that stuff from Obi uh, Willis O'Brien, where. 
Uh, he learned from Willis O'Brien to actually go to the go to zoos and study the animals, right. watch their movement, and try to animate them according. You know, and that's not saying I don't love all of his destruction scenes because once again, reverting back to Twenty Million Miles to Earth, when well, when the Emer's coming up through, you know, the bridge that looks magnificent to me when he comes up and when he knocks parts of uh, the surrounding temples down. Uh, I, I think that looks fantastic. Um, but I always just favored more of the monsters themselves when they're in more of a natural surrounding like uh, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad or even Jason and the Argonauts. Sure, sure. So, uh, so Nick, as a, as a bit of a film buff there, um, do you have any feelings about the uh, recent uh, colorization of the film? I've, I've, you know, I don't have any personal opinions on the subject, but I have read uh, widely varying opinions about how successful uh, colorizing the movie is. Sure. As far as colorization of this film, uh, Legend Films, who, who did the colorization of this, and uh, many others, um, has done, has went through painstaking process. The the painstaking creative process of of going frame by frame through this you know to make sure that they were matching the colors as as he remembered them as was as would seem appropriate for the creatures for uh color of dresses whatever have you this and it came from beneath the sea were colorized in the same fashion where it cannot draw attention to itself that you know that these edge lines need to be right on you know they it needs to be done in a way that looks better than the chemical of uh, technical technicolor kind of uh, colorization process that we we've, we've been used to in the past and a lot of people end up going back to the black and white version because the edges look crisper and sure. in this case he would have done colorization if he had the budget but even during that time the even with color photography he said you know a lot of the film grain is going to become a problem with all the visual effects we're throwing in this and uh all the composite layers matte layers anything that has to go into this the more you start finagling with the film it's going to start breaking down and those errors and dust grains and particles are going to become more and more prevalent this process does what it can to clean up those dust particles film scratches uh, you know, they they went through the process. Uh, Legend Films, uh, he he believed in it. And even in the past, he's resisted. Uh, Harry House himself is speaking here, uh, has resisted uh, colorizing the black and white films he has worked on. And uh, then again, that's his name there attached to them. They always go to him and ask what his opinion is. And if they don't have his blessing, they don't go through with it. And in, these, in this case, Legend Films is has uh, shown him what they can do and he and he worked with them to make sure that it was done right but what's cool about the home video releases if you want to see either uh, version of it you can hit the angle button on your remote and it will switch from color to uh, black and white so huh. that's kind of cool get your choice that is cool you get that's very cool yeah man well on 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 that note uh tim do you have any opinions about this because like i just heard the uh uh, the film nerd take on it, but you're probably going to come at it from more of just an aesthetic, what you like and don't like perspective. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I need to see it. I haven't seen it, and uh, and my uh, it's pretty much what Nick says. I uh, 
I, I'm not sold on the whole colorization process, so I, I really can't comment on it because from what Nick says, it sounds like it's really done well. So um, I would actually love to see it, and I haven't seen it yet. So really on that, uh, I'll still stick to my old curmudgeon of it's black and white, keep it black and white, damn it. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, but I still want to see it. Now I really want to see it And um, after hearing Nick talk about it. So, um, and, you know, some of the, the, the films that they've tried to do this with in the past, they, they lose um, some of their just – some of what they are to me. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a, uh, and I, I'm a, and I know Nick is too. I'm a big fan of black and white and all of that. And I know uh, it's kind of neat to see a film that takes on color. You can watch it in a whole different way, but really I'll, I'll need to see it. And um, sure. if it does look that good, honestly, I'll probably like it. Well, so the the only version that, that I have seen at all, because I only watched this movie today for the first time mm-hmm. ever, um, the only version of it that I've seen is the color version. Okay. And um, uh, I, I, I didn't even realize that it had been colorized until probably about 20 minutes into it. Um, did, some, did something tip you off to it, or were you reading about it? Uh, something tipped me off to it, and what it was is I, w- what it was was I started thinking, man, um, there's a... A uh, really natural set of green hues on this creature for the time period I know this was made in. That strikes me as weird because the color photography film I've seen from this time period doesn't usually let greens be that sparkly. Yeah, and that's when I looked it up and found out. Um, and and by the way, one of the articles that I read about it in the process of looking that up basically said something to the effect of. Uh, the opinion of this particular article writer was that um, some of the uh, animation of the creature uh, jumped out as significantly more fake in the color version to him. But I don't, you yeah. know, I don't have any opinions of that myself, one way or other. I'm just repeating what I read, you know. And I, I think a lot of that is is still personal preference. Yes, and yes. you know, I um, I like. For instance, and, and I'm not I'm not saying this disagreeing with anybody's feelings or what anybody thinks. This is just what I think. I mean, for instance, and, and like Nick, I sort of I always uh, kaiju is my biggest influence. And then, as I said earlier, next to that, it's it's probably primarily Harryhausen than other assorted sci-fi, George Pal-esque, classic sci-fi, Universal, blah blah blah. Um, but you know, there's something about black and white that I love and there's there's and I know I know Nick and I would agree too there's something about the original Gojira that lends to the mystique and the dark overtone of the film and the the loomingness and the despair of the whole movie and I think black and white lends a certain darkness to that element where um I don't know if uh, the only colored version I've ever seen, Nick, is actually the one that you sent me from the Italian director. Oh, um, goodness. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. And I know that's nothing to judge it by, but, you know, I'm, um, like I said, it's personal preference and I'm, I'm just a sucker for black and white, you know, and, uh, if, if I'm given the opportunity, I'll probably, once again, like I said, I'm a curmudgeon. I'll probably stick with the black and white. And 
I'd watch it. I, I want to see it, though, too, because, you know, it's it's curious like watching Kong when they colorized Kong. You had to see it, you know. And um, But, you know, I don't know if it's like watching something from 1939, like either Gone with the Wind or The Wizard of Oz, where, what is that, like three-strip Technicolor, where the color is just, is that is that correct? With the uh, with the uh, Wizard of Oz and and Gone with the Wind, yes, because they were yeah same director, same year. They were experimenting with that three strip color, right? And right. And discovered and know, something amazing. Yeah, yeah, and that's like see, that's kind of what I'm going to wind up basing it off of if it's an older film that's in black and white because those films look so amazing and you know there's even something about some of the older films that were done in two strip Technicolor. Um, like I think, uh, wasn't Dr. X with Fay Ray done with that or, or horrors in the wax museum where it, it takes on that creepy green overtone, which I really like. Um, but as far as, as color goes, you know, I, I want to see it, but I'll stick with, uh, I'll stick with the original. In the defense of the color, I, I do agree with Tim. The tone of the film can a lot of times dictate, dictate how maybe successful, uh, that process might be. In this case, Harry Housen himself was watching it and saying, in a lot of ways, what they've done here with this film yeah. is bringing a new life to it. And so by, you know, you think about uh, what you might, what it might add to the film, in this case, where there is a lot of daylight scenes uh, occurring mm -hmm. and, uh, and seeing the creature and his contrast versus his backgrounds, uh, you know, how that green color really pops out. And uh, especially the uh, scenes where he's fighting the elephant, uh, you know, where you actually are seeing blood drip from the elephant, which yep. he was saying maybe uh, maybe there was some of that in the black and white. But now, of course, it's accentuated by the color. And in broad daylight, uh, that, that again brings new life to this film and, and a new life, introduces a new audience to something that uh, maybe they would have shut down saying, oh, it's black and white. I'm not going to give it a chance because I like color films and for some reason they seem to think that all films should be color and not black and white. They are they automatically get into a mindset when it's black and oh, white. Yeah. yeah, my son's my totally son's like, totally like that. He's totally like that. You know, and, and what you said too, you know, it's like when when they colorized Kong, it's not like they had Willis O'Brien sitting there painstakingly going through every cell, you know, and you know, just the fact like you say, with Harry Harryhausen doing it, I mean, that's that's probably one of the only reasons that I actually would like to sit down and watch it, you know? And, uh, you know, the black and white thing for me is is in general. But, you know, if, if Harryhausen had something to do with the process of, of a film, you know, we want to see it. You know, I know you do. Sure. And, you know, if you say it looks good, dude, I, I bet it looks awesome. Check it uh, out, Tim. Let me know what you think. Hey, I Tim. will, absolutely. I kind of want to run out and get it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> You know, and it's it's funny because we were talking a little bit about, you know, I'm looking at, I have this fantastic book. And if you are a Ray Harryhausen fan, uh, there is a book called The Art of Ray Harryhausen. And uh, as a forward by Peter Jackson, and it's actually by Ray Harryhausen and Tony Dalton. So when you're, when you're reading the book, it's told from Ray's perspective. And... Um, you know, for anybody who's out there that's a 20 million miles to earth fan, something we were discussing earlier, and as most people know who, you know, enjoy movies, know know anything about the movie making process, that 
that movies go through a long lifespan from from their birth from their from their conception all the way to the final release of the film and sometimes the original ideas and conception have really hardly any similarities to the final product and what we were talking about before is 20 million miles to earth was originally based off of a project that Harryhausen was calling the giant cyclops and it wasn't uh, it wasn't anything like the Emer, and it wasn't a cyclops either. <laughs> and uh, there's some great pictures in the, this book of these early concepts of it. And once again, as Nick stated, um, the uh, the locations went through a few changes, and and as Nick said, Chicago was definitely one of them. With a scene where they actually froze the Emer instead of electrifying it to to hold it captive, to catch, capture it. And, um, and another little interesting tidbit about the Emer is that the model, the only part of the Emer model that exists now is um, just the head, the skull, and it has one ball joint in it. Um, that's all that remains, and the, the latex is eroded away. And he actually took the Emer's body and cannibalized it to create the Cyclops for Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Mm. Yeah, pretty pretty neat stuff. Well, so hey, Nick, uh, do you have a favorite story uh, from the uh, DVD commentary that you want to share with us? Okay, there's all kinds of stories, of course, um, that they shared. Uh, one of the ones that, you know, even Harryhausen sitting there with... Uh, Phil Tippin, I'm going to look in the back to get his name right, Arnold Arnold Kunert, um, when they were talking about a certain part where Harry Housen was uh, actually supposed to have a cameo, and he's credited on the IMDb as a man uh, who's feeding the elephant. And huh. uh, But when they, they, when they watched it, he couldn't identify himself, and they did see someone wearing a brown jacket with his back to the camera, and uh, they're pretty sure that it's him, but, you know, they didn't know for sure, but they're just going to go ahead and say that's got to be him. But that's not nice. the most interesting. But speaking of the elephant, they wanted a elephant that uh, specifically uh, Harryhausen wanted a 15 foot elephant yeah. and they could not find one. So they needed to make this elephant appear to be 15 foot. So they did get an actor to play the elephant trainer or, you know, just uh, elephant keeper. Uh, they found a small man who stood about four nine uh, and dressed him up and made him the made him the man standing next to the elephant to make him appear much taller, actually. So because of that uh, restriction to so they could make him the size of the emir so that when they do duke it out, uh, they're. They're to scale with each other. Right, right. That's all. Awesome. What what the heck is up with uh, Harryhausen and elephants? Because in uh, in Guangzhou, um, they had the real element. The real elephant that they had was too small. So they uh, it says in Valley of Guangzhou, I had to add him to the roster of models for the film when the real elephant proved too small. That's <laughs> And, and, and I know something else that, that Ray used to get a little ornery about was when people would say, so why does the elephant in 20 million miles to Earth sound like a raging pterodactyl? 
<laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that uh, that sort of canned Hanna Barbera Johnny Quest <laughs> roar that it makes. That's it, it's funny, and uh, uh, I can't. I think it was our, our buddy Jeff Horn that uh, said he was he had met Ray and somebody had asked him that and uh, he kind of <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> Oh. Well, and to even push the elephant uh, usage even further, as I understand, the emir roar is a composite of elephant sounds, whether reversed or, uh, you know, gone through some sort of filtering process. But, yeah, there's something of a, of an actual elephant sound in the emir's roar, actually. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. But not in the elephant's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. That's funny. Well, okay. Um, okay. So, so um, to uh, to wrap it up, uh, I want to ask you both what your favorite scene from this movie is. Nick, do you have a favorite scene? Goodness, the favorite a favorite scene of mine. I like quite a bit of it. I will say, I really like seeing the Emir not in his gigantic form, but in his eight inch tall form, especially when he is hatching. It's yes. such yeah. a cool. Visual. Yeah, it's so. Uh, and especially check out the color version because when you see him coming out of this gelatin kind of stuff, uh, you know, you I'm thinking uh, first, how cool is that, that visual effect and thinking, you know, this might look, this might actually look like what an alien might uh, look like if it were hatched. Uh, but at the same time, your, your next thought is, how the heck did Ray Harryhausen do that? He's under hot lights. Yeah. A lot of the times he had to take these... Uh, anything on these figures not melt under the lights and whatever that material was it wasn't doing that so you would think of jello yeah that would melt uh, yeah. so whatever he used uh, must be highly toxic but uh, <laughs> but he, he did what he did and he did it well and uh, but I love that hatching scene and then something else I think about is the next thing is uh, uh, the fact that this is a creature that comes from Venus so he's uh, uh they, you know, they probably thought he's probably got a volcanic kind of nature to himself, so he's eating sulfur right. at one point. Now, that's kind of cool. Uh, I was doing some research on Venus just to make sure I'm clarified a little on it because this is 1957. We hadn't, uh, I don't even think Sputnik had gone up yet at that point. Uh, so we didn't have much knowledge of Venus, but they did well. That It's actually close to 20 million miles away. It is a planet that is covered in carbon dioxide. It's not a planet we're going to be sending astronauts to anytime soon because it's <laughs> uh, it's actually hotter than it's actually a hotter planet than Mercury. Wow! Uh, because of its cloud cover, raging greenhouse effect. Yeah. 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 Cloud cover, sulfuric acid in the in the sky. Uh, it's just it's just an unpleasant place. And sure, let's send astronauts there, find something, bring them back. And their only problem was in landing the spacecraft. <laughs> mm. how, how about you, Tim? You got a favorite scene? Yeah, I do. And uh, I actually have two, but I'll say the first one really quick is the scene that I talked about when he comes up from underneath the bridge. I, I like that scene a lot. Um, but my favorite scene with the Emer is when uh, I liked him before he was full grown too, Nick. I like when they're in the barn. And there's one particular scene that I just... I love it so much, and it's when uh, it's when William Hopper is kind of he's they're trying he's trying to probe the Emer, and they're trying to get him into the cart. Yeah, and 
So they're they're trying to uh, corral him, and the scene is just in the barn. There's a barn door behind him, and the, it's a full frontal shot of the emer coming towards you, and it's very clear. And it's just the the, the camera work is stunning. You can even see the glare in his eye. And um, I don't know if you know what scene I'm talking about, but it's uh, every time I see that movie when they're in the barn and he's just coming straight at you, and you get this feeling like he's coming at you, and it it just looks wonderful. That's my that's hands down my favorite scene of the movie. Cool. There's another cool scene in that barn actually, where he's uh, fighting with the dog, and you yeah, see the shadow. The sh- yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man, cool. I wish we could sit down and watch a ton of these together. You know, um, we, we, <laughs> yeah. we, could, we could make it a series if you want to. But uh, yeah. but, but the uh, but the but the shadow uh, fight scene reminded me of. Um, I know there was a shadow fight scene in Clash of the Titans. Was that something that he did in most of his movies? Um, you're right. That's that was a scene with Calibus, if I remember yeah. correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I. I don't recall too many scenes like that. Do you, Nick? I can't think of any. I'm thinking Beast. I mean, you saw Beast sometimes um, silhouetted behind yeah. snow. Right. Yeah. King. So they he occasionally would uh, would do things like that to not just reveal the creature, but actually you know do a little bit of uh, leave a little bit of mystery there and keep him keep uh, them in the background. I'm thinking Clash of the Titans also with the Medusa. Uh, scene, you know, had had that shadowy stuff, but you know, yeah. you mentioned Clash. I can't think any anything in Jason and the Argonauts that used that, or or Guanji that used that either. They were pretty much creatures in your face, ready to fight. Um, yeah. So, but he, when he used it, it was uh, it's interesting because it it may have been a cost cutting measure. It may have been uh, it may have been actually more complicated. Who knows. Uh, you'd have to ask him, but he's gone now. So <laughs> yeah, maybe there's some yeah. research out there that has, you know, uh, has, has answered that question. But it's, uh, you know, it's another way of telling the story uh, without showing you exactly what's happening. Uh, sure. But you put in, you put in together your head, uh, what's happening there uh, with what you have, what with the sound effects and the little bit of of, of uh, shadow work that you get there, which I always think is a cool as a cool way to to showcase the monsters. I Absolutely. Agree. The, I agree. the only thing that I could eat, and I might be hallucinating this, is when uh, in Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, when the skeleton comes to life, and I don't even think that's correct. And so I, those are the only two things I can recall. Probably get a lot of people saying, there's 17 more. Well, you know, but uh, you know, as, <laughs> we go, as we go through them for our series that we just decided we were going to do, I guess we'll yeah. find out. There you go. I love that. I love that idea. This will be a lot of fun. Well, okay. So I'm going to go ahead and, and wrap up now. But what I want to do is, uh, Nick, would you uh, tell us one more time about your podcast, The Monster Report? Okay. Uh, Monster Report's a YouTube channel that I created in 2014. Uh, just before the uh, 2014 release of uh, Godzilla, legendary film. And uh, it was just a, something I always had in the back of my mind to do. I had always loved uh, critics out there, did their work, uh, and showcased some comedy, did interviews, just, uh, you know, they had something to say, and YouTube gave them the chance to say it and showcase uh, you know their opinions on things, whether people cared about them or not. At least they had an outlet for their for their creativity and for their thoughts to get out there, more than just in print. 
uh, which, you know, there's people who love print as well. I, some of us are video people. Some of us are podcasters. So I wanted to, I wanted to get out there, you know, my love of monsters and build some appreciation for these films that uh, maybe not everyone has had the chance to see. And that's why I always uh, introduce the show as it's a, it's a, it's a brief look at film history, entertaining creatures of film history. Sure. So, uh, you know, I'll talk about some modern monsters, but usually we're going back uh, to everything from Lost World, you know, mm. the 1921 mm-hmm. film. I can't remember what year that was, but, you know, everything from that forward uh, and, uh, and showcasing what we, well, gosh, even Edison. Edison had Frankenstein. Uh, before, before yeah, 1902. Uh, yeah, that was yeah. 1902. Yeah, so even from there forward, there are so many creatures out there, and uh, I wanted to get my thoughts out there. But of course, Godzilla was the and, and anything Toho and Daiei coming from Japan was always mm-hmm. my first love. But in in that same vein, I was always a fan of Universal, Harryhausen, and uh, anything that showcased creatures in film history. And uh, I just think there's something, uh, something very scary about monsters. And yeah. uh, you know, as a kid, it's it's like a roller coaster. It's something that you know you get a thrill from. It's entertaining, and you can rewatch it, and you can ride that roller coaster over and over again. So it was a case that um, I really wanted to start this, get other people's opinions too, meet some people, network. And now, of course, been going to G Fest. That is the one con that is a mandatory thing for me every year uh, yeah. to go and network with. I'd like you. Awesome, awesome. And uh, Tim, why don't you tell me about Big in Japan or anything else you want to uh, talk about? Absolutely. Thanks, Alan. Sure. Um, once again, my name is Timothy Price. I'm the author and creator of the the ongoing series called Big in Japan that features rock stars that fight Dai Kaiju, and I'm very Happy to say that Alan here has done um, the illustrations for the two uh, two novels, uh, illustrated novels, as well as the covers. And he's also been part of the creative process since the beginning. And we're really happy with where it's been going over the last couple of years. And uh, I, uh, you can read about Big in Japan. You can find out about it at uh, www.biginjapanrocks.com. Dot com. It's uh, the novels are also available on Amazon.com, and I also write for Mad Scientist Magazine, um, which is a, a, a great magazine put out by Martin Arlt. Um, and um, really, really happy with a lot of the stuff that's been coming coming our way as monster fans. As Nick says, it's a great time to be a monster fan right now, and. Uh, you know, uh, I love the fact that I was able to grow up in the 70s and when a lot of this stuff was still going crazy and, you know, you actually got to catch a little bit of the 50s and 60s in there with the sci-fi and monsters and see first-run Godzilla movies when they first came out during the Showa period. And, um, you know, uh, one of my greatest movie experiences, movie-going experiences, was actually seeing the seventh voyage of Sinbad at a matinee release with a, a cinema packed to the gills with screaming kids. And um, another thing that I do that I do at conventions all around the country is, is I have a very large super eight millimeter monster sci-fi film collection. I have about 300 films 
and I, uh, I visit various cons around the country, and we do eight millimeter monster presentations, um, and that's that's something I love to do. And if you're ever at any of those cons or see what I call spook cinema, please come in and watch a viewing. You'll have a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, thank you both, and uh, I'll, we'll, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Alan. Thank you.